Today I'll be reading from The Conjurer's Magazine, or Magical and Physiognomical Mirror, Volume 1, Number 1, published in London in August 1791. There's a lot of stories in this magazine. Uh, I'm going to be reading a story from page 34 called Transportation by Invisible Power, a True Narrative. Before we enter upon a description of the most extraordinary transactions that perhaps ever happened, we shall begin with giving an account of the parties who were principally concerned that the impartial world may be enabled to form some judgment what credit is due to the following narrative. Mrs. Golding, an elderly lady at Stockwell in Surrey, at whose house the transactions began, was born in the same parish of Lambeth, and has always been well known and respected as a gentlewoman of unblemished honor and character. Mrs. Payne, a niece of Mrs. Golding, has been married several years to Mr. Payne, a farmer at Brixton Causeway, a little above Mr. Angel's, has several children, are well known and respected in the parish. Mary Martin, Mr. Payne's servant, an elderly woman, has lived two years with them and four years with Mrs. Golding, where she came from. Richard Fowler lives almost opposite to Mr. Payne at the Brick Pound, an honest, industrious, and sober man. Sarah Fowler, wife to the above, an industrious and sober woman. The above are the subscribing evidences upon whose veracity we must rest the truth of the narrative. There are, however, numbers of other persons who were eyewitnesses of many of the transactions. Another person who bore a principal part in these scenes was Anne Robinson, Mrs. Golding's maid, a young woman about twenty years of age who had lived with her but one week and three days. On Monday, January the 6th, 1772, about ten o'clock in the forenoon, as Mrs. Golding was in her parlor, she heard the china and glasses in the back kitchen tumble down and break. Her maid came to her and told her the stone plates were falling from the shelf. Mrs. Golding went into the kitchen and saw them broke. Presently after, a row of plates from the next shelf fell down likewise. While she was there, and nobody near them, this astonished her much, and while she was thinking about it, other things in different places began to tumble about, some of them breaking. Attended with violent noises all over the house, a clock tumbled down, and the case broke. A lantern that hung on the staircase was thrown down, and the glass broke to pieces. An earthen pan of salted beef broke to pieces, and the beef fell about. All this increased her surprise and brought several persons about her, among whom was Mr. Rowledge, a carpenter, who gave it as his opinion that the foundation was giving way and that the house was tumbling down, occasioned by the too great weight of an additional room erected above. So ready are we to discover natural causes for everything." But no such thing happened, for whatever was the cause, that cause ceased almost as soon as Mrs. Golding and her maid left any place, and followed them wherever they went. Mrs. Golding run into Mr. Gresham's house, a gentleman living next door to her, where she fainted. In the interim, Mr. Rowledge and other persons were removing Mrs. Golding's effects from her house for fear of the consequences he had prognosticated. At this time all was quiet. Mrs. Golding's maid, remaining in her house, was gone upstairs, 
and when called upon several times to come down, for fear of the dangerous situation she was thought to be in, she answered very coolly, and after some time came down as deliberately without any seeming fearful apprehensions. Mrs. Payne was sent for from Brixton Causeway, and desired to come directly, as her aunt was supposed to be dead. This was the message to her. When Mrs. Payne came, Mrs. Golding had been recovered, but was very faint. Among the persons who were present was Mr. Gardiner, a surgeon of Clapham, whom Mrs. Payne desired to bleed her aunt, which he did. Mrs. Payne asked him if the blood should be thrown away. He desired it might not, as he would examine it when cold. These particular these minute particulars would not be taken notice of, but as a chain to what follows. For the next circumstance is of a more astonishing nature than anything that had preceded it. The blood that was just congealed sprung out of the basin upon the floor, and presently after the basin broke to pieces. This china basin was the only thing broke belonging to Mr. Gresham. A bottle of rum that stood by it broke at the same time. Amongst the other things that were moved to Mrs. Gresham's was a tray full of china, etc., a Japan bread basket, some mahogany waiters, with some bottles of liquors, jars of pickles, etc., and a pier glass, which was taken down by Mr. Saville, a neighbor of Mrs. Golding's. He gave it to one Robert Hames, who laid it on the grass plat at Mr. Gresham's, but before he could put it out of his hands, some parts of the frame on each side flew off. It raining at that time, Mrs. Golding desired it might be brought into the parlor, where it was put under a sideboard, and a dressing glass along with it. It had not been there long before the glasses and china which stood on the sideboard began to tumble about and fall down, and broke both the glasses to pieces. Mr. Saville and others, being asked to drink a glass of wine or rum, both the bottles broke in pieces before they were uncorked. Mrs. Golding's surprise and fear increasing, she did not know what to do or where to go, wherever she and her maid were, these strange destructive circumstances followed her, and how to help or free herself from them was not in her power or any other person's present. Her mind was one confused chaos, lost to herself, and everything about her, drove from her own home, and afraid there would be none other to receive her. At last she left Mr. Gresham's and went to Mr. Mailings, a gentleman at the next door. Here she stayed about three-quarters of an hour, during which time nothing happened. Her maid stayed at Mr. Gresham's to help put up what few things remained unbroke of her mistress's in a back apartment, when a jar of pickles that stood upon a table turned upside down, then a jar of raspberry jam broke to pieces. Next, two mahogany waiters and a quadrille box likewise broke in pieces. Mrs. Payne, not choosing her aunt should stay too long at Mr. Mailing's for fear of being troublesome, persuaded her to go to her house at Rush Common near Brixton Causeway, where she would endeavor to make her as happy as she could, hoping by this time all was over, as nothing had happened at that gentleman's house while she was there. This was about two o'clock in the afternoon. Mr. and Miss Gresham were at Mr. Payne's house when Mrs. Payne, Mrs. Golding, and her maid went there, it being past noon, they all dined together. In the interim, Mrs. Golding's servant was sent to her house to see how things remained. When she returned, she told them that nothing had happened since they left it. Some time after, Mr. Gresham and Miss went home, everything remaining quiet at Mr. Payne's. But about eight o'clock in the evening, a new scene commenced. The first thing that happened was a whole row of pewter dishes, except one, 
fell from off a shelf to the middle of the floor, rolled about a little while, and then settled, and what is almost beyond belief, as soon as they were quiet, turned upside down. They were then put on the dresser and went through the same process a second time. Next fell a whole row of pewter plates, from the second shelf over the dresser to the ground, and being taken up and put on the same place, one in another, they were again thrown down. Two eggs that were upon one of the pewter shelves next flew off, crossed the kitchen, struck a cat on the head, and then broke to pieces. Mary Martin, Mrs. Payne's servant, now went to stir the kitchen fire. She got to the right-hand side of it, being a large chimney, as is usual in farmhouses, when a pestle and mortar that stood nearer the left-hand end of the chimney shelf jumped about six feet on the floor. Then went candlesticks and other brasses, scarce anything remaining in its place. After this, the glasses and china were put down on the floor for fear of undergoing the same fate, but they presently began to dance and tumble about and then broke to pieces. A teapot that was among them flew to Mrs. Golding's maid's foot and struck it. A glass tumbler that was put on the floor jumped about two feet and then broke. Another that stood by it jumped about at the same time, but did not break till some hours after, when it jumped again and then broke. A china bowl that stood in the parlor jumped from the floor to behind a table that stood there. This was most astonishing, as the distance from where it stood was between seven and eight feet, but was not broke. It was put back by Richard Fowler to its place, where it remained some time, and then flew to pieces. The next thing that followed was a mustard pot that jumped out of a closet and was broken. A single cup that stood upon the table, almost the only thing remaining, jumped up, flew across the kitchen, ringing like a bell, and then was dashed to pieces against the dresser. A candlestick that stood on the chimney shelf flew across the kitchen to the parlor door at about fifteen feet distance. A tea kettle under the dresser was thrown out about two feet. Another kettle that stood at one end of the range was thrown against the iron that is fixed to prevent children falling into the fire. A tumbler with rum and water in it that stood upon a waiter upon a table in the parlor jumped about ten feet and was broke. The table then fell down, and along with it a silver tankard belonging to Mrs. Golding, the waiter in which had flood the tumbler and a candlestick. A case bottle then flew to pieces. A ham that hung in one side of the kitchen chimney now raised itself from the hook and fell to the ground. Some time after, another ham that hung on the other side of the chimney likewise underwent the same fate. Then fell likewise a flitch of bacon. The family were all eyewitnesses to these circumstances, as well as other persons, some of whom were so alarmed and shocked that they were happy in getting away, though the unhappy family were left in the midst of their distresses. Most of the genteel families around were continually sending to inquire after them, and whether all was over or not. It is not surprising that some among them had not the inclination and resolution to try to unravel this most intricate affair at a time when it would have been in their power to have done so. There certainly was sufficient time for so doing, as the whole, from first to last, continued upwards of twenty hours. At all the times of action... Mrs. Golding's servant was walking backwards and forwards, either in the kitchen or parlor, or wherever some of the family happened to be. Nor could they get her to sit down five minutes together, except at one time for about half an hour towards the morning when the family were at prayers. Then all was quiet, 
But in the midst of the greatest confusion, she was as much composed as at any other time, and with uncommon coolness of temper, advised her mistress not to be alarmed or uneasy, as she said these things could not be helped. Thus she argued, as if they were common occurrences, which must happen in every family. This advice surprised and startled her mistress, almost as much as the circumstances that occasioned it. For how can we suppose that a girl of about twenty years old, an age when female timidity is too often assisted by superstition, could remain in the midst of such calamitous circumstances, except they proceeded from causes best known to herself, and not be struck with the same terror as every other person who was present? These reflections led Mr. Payne, and at the end of the transactions, likewise Mrs. Golding, to think that she was not altogether so unconcerned as she appeared to be. But hitherto the whole remains mysterious and unraveled. About ten o'clock at night they sent over the way to Richard Fowler, to desire he would come and stay with them. He came and continued till one in the morning, and was so terrified that he could remain no longer. As Mrs. Golding could not be persuaded to go to bed, Mrs. Payne at that time, one o'clock, made an excuse to go upstairs to her youngest child under pretense of getting it to sleep, but she really acknowledges it was through fear, as she declares she could not sit up to see such strange doings going on, as everything one after was broke, till there was not above two or three cups and saucers remaining out of a considerable quantity of china, etc., which was destroyed to the amount of some pounds." About five o'clock on Tuesday morning, Mrs. Golding went up to her niece and desired her to get up, as the noises and destruction were so great she could continue in the house no longer. At this time, all the tables, chairs, drawers, etc. were tumbling about. When Mrs. Payne came down, it was amazing beyond all description. Their only security, then, was to quit the house for fear of the same catastrophe as had been expected the morning before at Mrs. Golding's. In consequence of this resolution, Mrs. Golding and her maid went over the way to Richard Fowler's. When Mrs. Golding's maid had seen her safe to Richard Fowler's, she came back to Mrs. Payne to help her to dress the children in the barn, where she had carried them for fear of the house falling. At this time all was quiet. They then went to Fowler's, and then began the same scene as had happened at the other places. It must be remarked all was quiet here as well as elsewhere till the maid returned. When they got to Mr. Fowler's, he began to light a fire in his back room. When done, he put the candle and candlestick upon a table in the foreroom. This apartment Mrs. Golding and her maid had passed through. Another candlestick with a tin lamp in it that stood by it were both dashed together and fell to the ground. A lantern with which Mrs. Golding was lighted with crossed the road, sprung from a hook to the ground, and a quantity of oil spilled on the floor. The basket of coals, lastly, tumbled over and rolled about the room. The maid then desired Richard Fowler not to let her mistress remain there. As she said, wherever she was, the same things would follow. In consequence of this advice, and fearing greater losses to himself, he desired she would quit his house, but first begged her to consider within herself, for her own and the public's sake, whether or not she had not been guilty of some atrocious crime for which Providence was determined to pursue her on this side of the grave, for he could not help thinking she was the object that was to be made an example to posterity by the all-seeing eye of Providence, for crimes which but too often none but that Providence can penetrate, and by such means as these bring to light. 
Thus was this poor gentlewoman's measure of affliction complete, not only to have undergone all which has been related, but to have added to it the character of a bad and wicked woman, when till this time she was esteemed as a most deserving person. In candor to Fowler, he could not be blamed. What could he do? What would any man have done that was so circumstanced? Mrs. Golding soon satisfied him. She told him she would not stay in his house or in any other person's, as her conscience was quite clear, and she could as well wait the will of Providence in her own house as in any other place whatever. Upon which she and the maid went home, Mr. Payne went with them. After they had got to Mrs. Golding's the last time, the same transactions once more began upon the remains that were left. A nine-gallon cask of beer that was in the cellar, the door being open, and no person near it, turned upside down. A pail of water that stood on the floor boiled like a pot. A box of candles fell from a shelf in the kitchen to the floor. They rolled out, but none were broke. A round mahogany table overset in the parlor. Mr. Payne then desired Mrs. Golding to send her maid for his wife to come to them. When she was gone, all was quiet. Upon her return, she was immediately discharged, and no disturbances have happened since. This was between six and seven o'clock on Tuesday morning. At Mrs. Golding's were broke the quantity of three pails full of glass, china, etc. At Mrs. Payne's, they filled two pails. Thus ends the narrative, a true, circumstantial, and faithful account of which I have laid before the public, and so doing, I hope to escape its censure. I have neither exaggerated or diminished one circumstance to my knowledge, and have endeavored as much as possible throughout the whole to state only the facts without presuming to obtrude my opinion on them. If I have in part hinted anything that may appear unfavorable to the girl, it proceeded not from a determination to charge her with the cause, right or wrong, but only from a strict adherence to truth, most sincerely wishing this extraordinary affair may be unraveled. The above narrative is absolutely and strictly true, in witness whereof we have set our hands this eleventh day of January, 1772. Mary Golding, Mary Payne, John Payne, Richard Fowler, Sarah Fowler, Mary Martin. That's uh, a brief but intense story. I'm going to keep reading. Oh, wait, there's more. The original copy of this narrative, signed as above, with the party's own hands, was put in the hands of J. Mark's bookseller in St. Martin's Lane to satisfy any person who chose to apply to him for the inspection of the same. A uh, little end note there. Um, there is one more story that follows this one. It's just a short paragraph, and it's on the same page. So I'm just going to read this also. Natural curiosity of a stone, which, like the chameleon, has the property of changing its color in certain circumstances. Mr. Andrew Onacellius, one of the physicians at the court of Poland, relates that having been at Thorn, a famous lapidary there, showed him, among other curiosities, a stone called by some the mineral polypius, about the size of a large pea, and of an ash color. What is wonderful in this stone is that, though opaque and having no transparent part, after being laid in water, 
It began in less than six minutes to appear shining at the edges and to communicate to the water a sort of luminous shadow and of the color of yellow amber. It afterwards passed from yellow to the color of an amethyst and from thence successively to black, white, and cloudy colors and, as it were, surrounded with smoke and at last appeared quite brilliant, entirely transparent, and of very beautiful yellow-amber color. Taken out of the water, it returned to its former opaque state, after being colored successively, and in a retrograde order, with the same dyes it had before assumed in the water. The doctor adds that this stone is natural and not a production of art, and that it also may be regarded as a proof of the existence of a formal light in nature. Hmm. We still have a little time, so I'm going to jump ahead. Uh, many issues to volume one, number 12, and read another short story. Uh, I've been perusing the issues of this magazine, and uh, of all stories, this one might be the most unique. This is from volume one, number 12, from July 1792, um, The Conjurer's Magazine. An account of a body which had been found entirely converted into hair a considerable time after it was buried. About 43 years ago, a woman was interred at Nuremberg in a wooden coffin painted black according to the custom of the country. The earth wherein her body was deposited was dry and yellow, as it is for the most part in the environs of that city. Of three bodies buried in the same grave, this woman's was laid deepest in the ground, and there being an occasion to make room for a fourth body, the grave was dug up anew, but to the great surprise of the digger, when he had removed the two uppermost coffins, he perceived a considerable quantity of hair that had made its way out through the slits and crevices of the coffin. The lid being taken off, there appeared a perfect resemblance of a human figure, the eyes, nose, mouth, ears, and all other parts being very distinct, but from the crown of the head to the soles of the feet, it was covered with very long, thick, and frizzled hair. The gravedigger, after examining it for some time, happened to touch the upper part of the head, but was more surprised than before on feeling the entire body shrink, and nothing at last remain in his hand but a bundle of rough hair, which insensibly assumed a brownish-red color. The learned Honoratus Fabri, Liber III, Duplantis, and several other authors are of opinion that hair, wool, Feathers, nails, horns, teeth, etc. are nothing but vegetables. If it be so, we need not be surprised to see them grow on the bodies of animals even after their death, as has been frequently observed. Petrus Borellus, and this is my best attempt at this book title, Historiarum et Observationum Medico-Physicarum Centuria One. Observationum 10, pretends that these productions may be transplanted as vegetables and may grow in a different place from that where they first germinated. He also relates in some of his observations on that subject, among others, that 
of a tooth drawn out and transplanted, which may appear pretty singular. Though the external surface of bodies is the usual place for the growth of hair, it has, notwithstanding, been sometimes found on the tongue, in the interior of the heart, and on its surface, in the breasts and kidneys, and in other glandular and muscular parts, but there is no internal part where it is oftener found than in the ovarium of females. This has been observed in three different subjects by Dr. Tyson, as we find it related in the philosophical collections of Mr. Hook, who also tells us on the testimony of Mr. Arnold that a man hanged at Tyburn, for a theft was found, in a very short time after he was taken away from the gallows, covered over in a very extraordinary manner with hair. That's all for now from The Conjurer's Magazine. But you get the gist of it. A lot of very strange material covering a wide variety of topics. I like it. We'll probably come back to this magazine in future episodes.